After hearing a passage like that, I don't know about you, I need to pray. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this book of Revelation is a challenging book and how we need your spirit to guide us, to teach us. Our prayer today is, God, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, these chapters, these really juicy chapters that we're passing through in Revelation, chapters 15 through 18 in this one big sweep here, they're the places where a whole lot of readers of Revelation finally say, I think I'm done. I'm going to go on to some other something else right now. Because these are hard chapters. They are filled with strange, sometimes gruesome images, language. It's hard. But a quick side note, um, starting next week, the revelation turns and it suddenly becomes filled with rays of hope, filled with light. So hang in there one more week, okay? But this week, one more, we remain in these hard to hear images and passages. It's like in these chapters, um, it's like the constant sound of the tolling of the bell of judgment. Bong. John is pouring out image after image, complex, baffling images, drawing us into this multi-layered intersection where God's will and our experience of good and evil come together. Now remember, this book of John, the Revelation, it is a discipleship manual of sorts. It is written to followers of Jesus who are facing some tough times and he's seeking to equip those followers of Jesus to deepen their faith in the coordinates of grace and despite the 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 massive upheaval they feel all around them he is helping them to fear not if anything that is the core theme the core message that John is hoping to elicit fear not do not fear and repeatedly throughout the book John's vision calls the church to stand in faith and to do that by coming to worship. Worship is the central activity of God's people. But for many, when you think of the press of the world's events, when you think of the moment we're in, it can feel absurd, that call. Like, surely, John, there's got to be something more. People of goodwill and good intelligence are called to more, aren't we, John? What do we do about these conditions we face in this world? And of course we are called to more. There's much more we do in response to the brokenness and evil in this world. But John always maintains the central focus, the central connection between worship and then what God does in the world. Nothing we do has more effect in heaven and on earth than our worship. And we see this as chapters 15 through 18 unfold. In these chapters, God's judgment gets released on the world, and it all develops out of worship. In chapter 16, again, emerging out of worship, judgment comes upon the world as these seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out. And this poured out judgment it's, it's not speaking about, you know, some future moment. It's not predicting a series of different events specific in a time of history. This, this is what God continues to do in history as he opposes the evil of the dragon, Satan, the enemy of God. If only we had the eyes to see that recurring throughout history. Revelation, remember, it's pulling back the curtain, helping us to see what's always been present but just hidden from sight. 
Because God loves this world, he brings judgment against all that is wrong, all that corrupts this world. When the world, when we violate God's laws, when we turn against the creator of the universe, we are violating ourselves, we're violating creation, we're running against reality. And we end up ruining ourselves and ruining creation. And these bowls of God's judgment that get poured out are in one sense the outworking of the natural consequences of how we violate the creator and the creation. In these chapters, John is starting, he's alerting us to the reality that we as followers of Jesus, as long as we find ourselves in this world, we are in the middle of a cosmic battle. The outcome of that battle, it is certain. The slain lamb, Jesus Christ, has defeated the dragon. That is not on offer. Uh, That is not up for question or for grabs. The dragon is defeated. It's just that the dragon won't concede that defeat. And so is doing his best in whatever time he has left to spoil and ruin all that is God's. Which means this world is not a friendly place for justice. We learn this really early on in life, as a parent of any child knows, because we hear children cry out repeatedly, almost from their first cries, that's not fair. Nobody gets what they deserve, whether that's enough ice cream for dessert or whether that's the proper consequence for a broken wall, that's not fair. And those child dynamics, that child awareness, only gets magnified, amplified as we live in our adult lives and we see it writ large on a global screen. And so God comes in judgment because things are not fair. There is injustice, which this is good news, God's judgment. I hope you hear that as that. Maybe it doesn't sound like good news to a lot of people, but I got to tell you, you want a God who judges, a God who comes with wrath. For many, that feels counterintuitive. You know, we say, no, 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 I want a God of love. Um, How can a God of love be so royally angry? What kind of loving God is filled with judgment? But we got to realize anger is not opposed to love or judgment. It is an expression of that. Any loving person gets filled with anger when something that they love dearly is endangered or threatened. God's wrath, his anger, his judgment is not some petulant emotional outburst. It is his settled disposition, his opposition to all that is wrong and corrupted, all that is ruining his good creation and the people he loves. God's wrath and his anger is against everything that is corrupted, everything that brings despair and darkness and destruction to our lives. And you want that sort of God. There's a theologian, um, Miroslav Volf, wrote a wonderful book called Exclusion and Embrace. And in that book, he explores places in the world where hatred and violence have just ripped apart lives and societies and cultures. It's an oppression that he experienced firsthand. And as he examined that and explored this, he wondered how can we get out of these cycles of violence and retaliation? What hope is there? And he says that this cycle of violence is not fueled by belief in a God of judgments. A God who has anger. No, no, no. It is fueled by a lack of belief in a God of wrath and judgment. Here's what he writes. Quote, in a world of violence, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. 
Violence thrives secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. He's saying that the only resource he knows powerful enough to pacify the human heart's need for justice and to keep us from getting sucked into endless cycles of violence and retribution is to say there is a God who is a judge and who will put everything right. Because if you don't believe in a God who will judge, a God who gets angry at injustice and will do something about it, you will then take the sword into your own hands. And so John lays out image after image of a God who is the judge of all things and who pours out judgment. It's a vision meant to bolster the faith of those persecuted disciples, saying to them, listen, the slain lamb will overcome. It is done. That is finished. And so will you as you follow his way. And we've seen just this past week a present day example of how this gets lived out. The black community, despite years, centuries of injustice, of oppression, in the face of an other grotesque instance of violence, the black community has turned in love, not seeking vengeance, but justice and freedom. I was watching a CNN interview with Dr. Cornell West, who is an emeritus professor at Harvard, And he was speaking about the funeral of George Floyd. And he noted, quote, there was not one reference to hatred or violence. Imagine that, not one reference to hatred or violence. How is that possible? Dr. West himself asked that question. What is it about these black people so thoroughly subjugated but who want freedom for everybody? He said, that's a grand, great gift to the world, still dishing out the love It's because they know there is a God of justice who is bringing his kingdom in. They know that the Babylon of racism is fallen. And that a better, fair world of God's kingdom is coming. It's not here now. We know it. We see it. It's not yet. But it is coming. And I see that and I think that's a faith I want. That's a faith I need to learn more about. And then in chapter 18, at the end of this whole cycle, we get this jarring image of Babylon, the prostitute riding the beast. The same beast we met in chapter 13. And this prostitute is luxuriously dressed, carrying a cup full, John says, of abominations. Now we need to see this image correctly to really catch what John is communicating. Because this image is not of someone trapped in sexual slavery. That's not the image. John, rather, is picturing, um, it's a metaphor in, in the prostitute, picturing complete cutting infidelity, an image of, of just relational betrayal that cuts to the heart. It's a pretty stock image that Old Testament prophets would use of God's people when they turned or rejected God. And so this prostitute of Babylon... Again, Babylon does not refer to an ancient city located in what we now know as Iraq. Babylon, again, was a code word for humanity that is living in rebellion against God. Any nation, any people, any culture that have rejected, pushed out God as the living center of its life, that asserts its own way 
for the biblical authors, that was Babylon. It was human life, human culture, built in opposition, in resistance, in rejection of God. And you got to know that you and I, we are constantly under the pressure of Babylon. It is not back then. It is here today. John says she rides on the waters, on peoples, nations, constantly drawing people in. You and I experience that every day. The Babylon qualities of life in Toronto, in Canada, it's here. John outlines a few qualities that we can notice about what this Babylon is like. A few marks that mark our cities, our cultures that have taken on this quality of Babylon. I'm just going to name a couple. You see it where, where the living God, his purposes, his way, his law, his grace is rejected, turfed out of a city's life and culture. You see it in violence, where violence and the constant presence of war and the apparatus of violence is seen and trusted deeply. There's sensuality. John speaks of Babylon corrupting the world with her immorality, where a city or a culture valorizes promiscuity or every form of sexual license and freedom. And then injustice. In 18 verse 13 of John's revelation here, John speaks of the merchants of Babylon selling slaves. How many Babylons have been built on the backs of slave, on unjust economic systems? And all this evil, this toxic mixture woven together, not always being able to discern parts of it, that is Babylon. So infused in the ways that we hardly see it. Again, Revelation is pulling back the curtain, saying, no, 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 look. See Babylon for what it's worth. See the idol of white supremacy for what it is. It is Babylon dressed up in ways we don't see and realize. See what the sexual revolution is. It is Babylon dressed up in ways we have not taken notice of. See what the exercises of domination and power are. Babylon dressed up in ways we're not seeing. And so in chapter 18, we hear, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon, whether first century, Rome, or any recent incarnation, it is fallen. Note the past tense of that. John is so certain about the fall of Babylon because he sees the slain lamb who has overcome all things. He's so certain of the fallen of Babylon because it excludes the living God. It excludes Jesus. And so it can't survive. It's only a matter of time before it collapses in on itself. One early theologian, Gregory the Great, who was living in the collapse of the Roman Empire, reflects on the church's call to preach the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Gregory said this, quote, Even if the gospel message was to be silent, the world now proclaims that message. Its ruins are its words. Struck by so many blows, it has fallen from its glory. It is as if the world itself reveals to us how now another kingdom is near, which will succeed it. That kingdom is abhorred by every people who who loved it. Its own ruins preach that it should not be loved. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Its ruins preach the coming of another kingdom. And then we hear this voice. This voice from heaven calling out to the church. 
Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Why be driven by what's fallen? Why try to keep pace, to keep up with what is collapsing? Come out of her. And this doesn't mean for you and I to to sort of separate ourselves physically or geographically from the world as if, you know, there's some special place where that, that is untainted by sin and the corruption of Babylon. Not at all. Babylon's everywhere. Rather, this is a call of reorientation. It is a call of discipleship. To which city is your city, your culture oriented? Babylon or the New Jerusalem, God's kingdom? And to which city, to which culture is your life, your heart oriented towards? Come out of her, my people. Come out of the violence and the apparatus of violence that so marks our culture. Come out of the sexual madness that permeates our culture, masked up as freedom. And in this moment, where the curtain hiding Racial injustice of our present-day Babylon has been pulled back so that we see racism in all its abomination. Church, come out from every form of racism that shapes the way we think and act. Listen to the voices of our black and indigenous brothers and sisters calling us as a church. Come out from that Babylon. Come out from those racially biased habits, practices, policies of our day. Come out and center ourselves on the Lamb who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and who will lead us into the ways of that great city to come. In Revelation, there's a repeated call, and it's this whoever has ears, let them hear what this let them hear what the Spirit has to say. Those are words for us as we face this moment. It's not a call for us to hear for someone else, to listen on behalf of someone else. Let's not hear for some other group that we think should really hear this. Hear what the Spirit has to say to you today. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Amen. Join me in prayer, would you? God, we live in the midst of Babylon. It's hard for us to even say that. We look at Toronto. Toronto the good, we call it. It's a great city. We love it. And yet, the reality of Babylon presses in around us all the time. In violence, in sexual license, in injustice, in how we find our security in money, how we make ultimate things that are not in systems of racism. God, would you show us where we are cooperating with Babylon? And specifically at this moment in history, show us where we are cooperating with the racism and injustice of Babylon, where we may be supporting us. Give us the faith and the courage to obey your call to come out so that we might be a source of truth and goodness in our city. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before our closing song, let me give you a blessing, and then I encourage you to stay tuned as we will move directly to the panel discussion in our live stream. But take the blessing of God. May the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the fellowship, the unity, the power of the Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.